Hello there, and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. This is Jason Jenkins. Japan is known for its incomparable dining scene, and with both the country and its restaurants beginning to open up in earnest, we've asked JT's food writer, Robbie Swinnerton, to share some of his favorite culinary experiences from the last 12 months. Robbie's been covering food for the Japan Times since the 90s and has an intimate knowledge of dining in Tokyo and beyond. From the latest Michelin-starred bistro, to neighborhood bakeries, noodle shops, and family-run izakaya, Japan's answer to the local pub. In this episode, Robbie and I discuss a few of his discoveries in 2022, both from his Tokyo Food File series, which focuses on restaurants in the capital, as well as from his Destination Restaurant series, which highlights fine dining far from Japan's main urban centers. Hey, Robbie. Welcome back to Deep Dive. So good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. Let's just get right into it and start off with some of your output from last year. What stood out from the Tokyo food file? There's a restaurant called Maz. Virgilio Martinez is one of the top chefs from Peru. He is a magician of food from his neighborhood. Wow. His main restaurant is in Lima. It's called Central. And he also has a smaller restaurant right in the top of the Andes in an indigenous village where he basically uses indigenous products and indigenous know-how to make a, a totally unique kind of cuisine. He's brought that to Tokyo. And basically the menu there takes you from deep in the ocean, well, for offshore, to Lima, to the central plains, to the lowlands, and then up to the top of the Andes, over the top, down the other side to the Amazon basin. That's where you get the coffee and cacao and tropical fruits from. And So he mixes this as a kind of journey. And amazingly, he's brought it to Tokyo and it totally works. Mainly it works because it tastes so good. It's really well done, but it's things you have not seen before or tasted before, but you will love them. So anyway, that was that's my first one. It, Tokyo goes Peruvian. And another of my favorites, not major, but really, really sweet, AC House. Chef Atsuki Kuroda, um, he used to be at a restaurant called Caveman. Uh, and then he split away to open his own place in a maybe 40, 50-year-old house, residential house that got reworked. So you walk in from a nondescript entrance and all of a sudden you're in this beautiful white designer interior with a kitchen right in front of you, and a big white counter where we all sit together and, and you're all served together, all like... Ah, this is the one where you have to, everyone has to arrive at the same time because you're those, all yeah, served. Yeah, definitely, right. which is 7 o'clock. But if you look, you're in this beautiful designer space and you crane your head up and you look and you're in 1970s, 60s Tokyo. It's just like unchanged at all upstairs. Wow. That in itself makes it worth at least one trip. But what you want to go back for is, is the fact that he's, he's a really nice chef. He's, he's a very cool guy. The music is fantastic. He cooks in a very appetizing way. Um, it always looks beautiful on the plate. You're there basically to nibble and drink wine for two and a half hours. And at, at the end you go, that was a great evening. Mm. And there's actually three low-end places that I should maybe mention. One is Kakan, Mabo Dofu. Very simple. Ah. It's in Tomigaya, which is a very happening little neighborhood of the sort of western side of town. And it fits in there perfectly because it's a little bit little bit hip, but it's the food is very, very excellent. Um, they also do takeouts, which was great during the pandemic. And somehow they have, it's not a Chinese mabodofu, it's a Japanese Chinese mabodofu. Oh. And it has a kind of delicacy, has lots of the spices, but without so much of the fire. And I, it works 
for me, it works because I've been in Japan so long and in China so long. But for me, it's like, it's great. So another of my favorites last year was Azuki Tokuri. The name literally means red bean and ice. And it's a little restaurant, maybe about seven seats, one counter, one counter overlooking the kitchen. And it serves one thing, actually serves two things, but the main thing is kakiguri, which is shaved ice. Ah. But not just ice, lots of flavors, uh, seasonal fruits. You've got cacao from the Amazon. You've got different spices on top. And I knew it was going to be good even before it started because this is an offshoot of Restaurant Florilege, which is one of our better one of our best French restaurants, two Michelin stars, always does well in the rankings. Super great chef, Chef Kawate. And it opened in February, I believe. In uh, February? Correctly. <laughs> do you eat shaved ice in February? Not often, no. We do, we do, if it's that good. Marvellous little place. And then the third place I'd just like to add there is Maguro Toshari, which means Maguro tuna, and Shari, which means rice. So tuna and rice. And as you can imagine, it's a sushi restaurant, but it basically serves tuna only. Bowls of rice topped with as much tuna as you choose to order. Again, a really small place and a, a counter, and you sit down and they bring this beautiful, beautifully arranged bowl of sushi rice, vinegar rice topped with fish. And it's so clean and modern and really well designed that I'm amazed it's not more popular than it is. All right, so... We're going to get to the destination restaurants, but before we do, I want to stop for a second and do a quick lesson in kind of Japan's culinary geography. For those who are unfamiliar with Japan's regional cuisine, break it down for us a little bit. How would you summarize the culinary styles of various parts of Japan? Well, it's such a huge country, isn't it? It runs from the tip of Hokkaido in the north down to Okinawa in the south. So you're going from basically near tropical, subtropical at the, at the bottom, and all the way up to sort of almost Siberian-type climate, a lot of snow in winter, very cold. But it's, Hokkaido also happens to be wide open spaces, so it's a big agricultural area for Japan. Up there you get great seafood. It's also the home of um, Sapporo ramen, miso ramen, maybe with corn on it, corn and, and, and butter, and it's like all the good stuff. So, and, and then Northeast Japan tends to be more salty, darker cuisine. It's, like, it's, like, it's also cold up in Northeast Japan. And so people have lots of hearty food just to get themselves through the winters. Around the Tokyo area, um, that, that kind of includes Tokyo area, but Tokyo is so international, it has to be, it stands out as a separate entity. Heading west, it's this, really the heartland of Japanese cuisine. You have Kyoto, which is de facto national cuisine, of course, because it was the imperial capital for so long. And Osaka, one of the huge ports and cultural center of Japan, long before Tokyo, long before Edo was the previous name for Tokyo, was even founded. So that's a really, really important part. Plus, lots of great food growing around the inland sea on Shikoku Island, too. So there's that sort of food. And then you get down to Kyushu. And uh, again, you're closer to Asia there. And quite a lot, a lot of the foods are a little bit more influenced by uh, Korea and China. There are foods there that you might even recognize from, from Thailand, you know, from Southeast Asia, such as um, Satsuma Age, which is very much like the deep fried fish you get in the islands on, you know, when you're backpacking through, <laughs> through Thailand, <laughs> to, uh, right. re revisiting my glory years. <laughs> so, and then you go down to Okinawa and basically it's the same country, but a different country. Right. Um, with different ecosystems, different geography, different history, and the culture is different. And food is definitely 
different. Uh, they, they never they never had a vegetarian phase. They just went. They kept on eating pork and goats and uh, again tropical fish. They're tropical fish from tropical waters, and their noodles are much more like Chinese noodles than say ramen is. So, in a large nutshell, that's it. Japan is a country of great extremes and lots of different variations of culinary tradition. Thanks, Swinnerton Sensei. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> now that we've had our lesson, let's get to the destination restaurant series. I know a lot of these places may not reflect the the local cuisine. They kind of do their own thing, but uh, it's really an exceptional list, and I'd love to hear a couple standouts from 2022. Yeah, as you say, there's not necessarily regional cuisines, but it's people using regional products to make create their own cuisine. What the series is, is intended to do is to draw people's attention to the fact there is great restaurants outside of Tokyo, Osaka, Kyoto, Fukuoka, you know, the, the big cities. And expressly, we do not cover any restaurants in those metropolis areas. So right. I should also point out that unlike Tokyo Food File, the destination restaurant series aren't my own choices. They're made by a panel of three people who are gastronomes and they know the country much better than I do. So I would certainly defer to their expertise. I mean, the Japanese, they, they travel, they, they know what's, what's good. I base my work around Tokyo all the time. I hardly get out of the area. And if I, when I do it, it's just so great. So this has been a perfect excuse for me to just travel and renew my, my love affair with, with the rest of Japan. Oh, yeah. I'm um, jealous. The first 10 restaurants were announced in 2021. I wrote one a month into last year. And then we started again from the middle of last year. And I would say the the highlight uh, of the 2022 series so far was my visit up to Niigata, which is mountainous country right in the highlands. There is a wonderful um, lodge called Satoyama Jujo. And whatever the season it's a good time to be there. But I actually think I went at the best season, which was in the early autumn, because you're starting to get the wild foods coming and you get a, the new harvest of the rice. You hear the chef is very keen on foraging. So we get a lot of wild foods up there. And are we talking sunsai, like mountain vegetables or? Absolutely. In, in spring, we get a lot of the, the wild plants, which are called sansai. But even through the summer and the autumn, there are lots of plants coming up, which are used on the table. There are wild nuts, there are wild fruits. For myself, visiting there, I had visited there before, but going back up to have a chance to see it in greater detail at a different time of year really impressed me that it was a really good place to visit and lived up to its billing as a destination restaurant. Right, so we've talked a little about high-end dining, but I know that's not all that you do. Let's cover a few sort of budget and mid-range recommendations. If someone doesn't have a lot of cash to eat out, what should they spend their money on? Uh, ramen. <laughs> so much good ramen um, from all over the country. Lots of different styles. Ramen isn't just one thing. It's probably about as many different things as there are ramen chefs. My personal favorite with ramen is is the lighter ones with uh, maybe not quite so rich and porky as the tonkotsu ramen that you have down in, in uh, Fukuoka, especially. But also, if you want to eat, get a good experience of Japanese food, just in one place, get a choice of foods rather than just going for one kind of food at once. An izakaya will always do you well. 
There are cheap and cheerful izakaya where you pay very, very little. I mean, often you're underneath the railway tracks built in there and you hear the trains thundering overhead and you have some good cheap sake and have fun. But there are also um, sort of mid-level izakaya where you eat with a bit more finesse, quality sake, excellent food usually. And because a good rule of thumb is that wherever there's good sake, there's also good food. They tend to go together. Uh Um, Sober restaurants also. Some sober restaurants are just, you go in, you get a bowl, you slurp, you leave. But other sober restaurants tend to specialize in things like tempura or they have a lot of little side dishes. And so over the years, especially in the evenings, these sort of places tend to be more like izakaya. You go in, you drink a bit and nibble a bit of this and that and the other. And then at the end, you have your soba. And there are some excellent places around the city. We're never too expensive. So those would be my three sort of areas I would look at. So do I have any recommendations? Actually too many. You'll find your own way. I know there's some people who look for non-Japanese options as well. Some of them may be travelers who are a little squeamish. Often there's people with uh, seafood or, or fish allergies. But the good news is that Japan really does so many international cuisines and so well, often with a little Japanese spin. Do you have any favorites out of these? Absolutely, yes. Oh, yeah. From the high end down to the bottom like Japanese-Italian food, which is very, very different from anything you'd find in Italy, but really good. There are top chefs, such as Luca Fantin at Bulgari Restaurant, just the name, you know it's going to be expensive, but it is really good. Chinese food. There are good Chinese restaurants that are not so different from what you'd find on the mainland, but there are also restaurants which have been, again, finessed with Japanese touch, you know, refracted through that prism of sort of delicacy and, and selection of ingredients and... Uh, of course, using local ingredients. Sazenka, wonderful restaurant, now has three Michelin stars. There are Indian restaurants. My favorites, I tend to be in the South, South Indian foods. You have um, Nirvanam, you have Daba India, great chain of Indian places that does good takeouts, which is called Eric South. They're so good, I'm sure they're going to spread through the country. If you're looking for a, a good steak, at that high end, you may have heard of Wagyu Mafia. These guys are doing crazy things <laughs> with meat. And, and if you're David Beckham or one of the you know, celebrity stars who can afford to go there, who fly in just especially to go there, that can be your thing. But there's also like Ikinari steak where you can eat American imported steak. It's not Wagyu, but it's good. And it, you, But you may find yourself standing up to eat it. <laughs> and a few years back, there was a chain that came to prominence called Orino Italian, my Italian. It's just, Ore is kind of men's word, so it's like where men would feel comfortable to go in. And again, most of these were places where you stood up to eat, but you're eating quite good quality food so they could turn customers through at a good rate, get them spending quite a lot on wine, but because they're standing up, they don't hang around for the second and third bottle. They just eat, drink, leave. So there's something for everyone in Tokyo, I'd say. So we've talked a little about specific dishes and restaurants. I'm curious about if there are particular areas, neighborhoods, or even just like a particular street or city block that you would recommend. You know, some sort of high-density dining areas. I mean, I've told you about some of my favorites. There's several here in Osaka. Shinsekai for kushikatsu or tsuruhashi for yakiniku or the, all the izakayas under the Yamanote line around Yorakcho and Shinbashi, but I'm sure you have much better intel. Where, if someone's asking for just a place, not a specific place to go, but a, an area to seek out food, was there a particular place you might recommend? 
You just mentioned one of my favorite areas, which is Shimbashi. It's where people have gone for cheap entertainment, so cheap food. But over the years, it's been some really high-end restaurants opened up there too. But you have a warren of streets where you can either cruise down the little alleyways and just say, oh, I like the look of that place. Or you can start the first place and actually do a pub crawl from one place to the next. And uh, you wouldn't be the only one doing that. End of, end of the night, especially on Friday night, there are a lot of people in very fine form there. <laughs> Asakusa also is quite an interesting place to walk around. Not quite the same food traditions, but lots of little alleyways where you'll always find something that will sort of... Um, grab your eye. And this kind of dovetails into one of the trends that's happening in Tokyo the last few years, which is the yokocho trend. In fact, it's neo-yokocho. Yokocho is like an area where lots of bars and restaurants, little restaurants are just set up side by side, cheek by jowl, uh, which would happen usually around train stations. And it developed after sort of World War II. People pile out of the trains and just need a drink before they head home. Now we have a new spin on that, which is called the neo-yokocho where they've been purpose-built, maybe inside uh, high-rise buildings or in the basement of the buildings or on, uh, upstairs, bringing people together, offering a, a big choice of different restaurants. Rather than going for large-scale restaurants, lots of little restaurants side by side, and you can choose what you're going to get, what you want, or just take your luck, just pop into one. And that's been a big favourite in the last few years. Wasn't the best timing for this to happen because with COVID happening, uh, you didn't want to have too many people side by side eating in these yokocho, but it's a great place to just find a lot of good food under one roof. Now let's talk trends in dining and, and dining culture. Before we talk about future trends, let's talk about what came before. I'm sure you've been a witness to countless food trends over the years. Have there ever been any that surprised you? I think I first became aware back in the day of the fact that there were these trends when out of a sudden there was a huge boom for tiramisu. This was probably back in 1990 or so, you know, it's like okay. uh, all of a sudden, it wasn't just like people liked tiramisu. It was like everywhere had to serve tiramisu. Everybody <laughs> wanted it all at once. Right. Um, to the point where its basic ingredient is mascarpone. And there was so much mascarpone was bought from Italy that there was a shortage in Italy. Wow. wow. It really it, it screwed up their supply chains. Yeah, these things really take off, don't they? Japan is <laughs> quite something with that, yes. I mean, uh, in, in a, it's kind of cute, but it's also scary because, you know, it, it could wipe out a whole species or two <laughs> if it gets <laughs> or, out of or hand. wreck a supply chain. Yeah, exactly. What comes next? Yes, I don't know. I've had people suggest that maybe gourmet sausages are on the horizon, you know, like sausages made with different ingredients, you know, kimchi mm. embedded in the, in the sausages or natto mixed in with the pork, you know, something like that. Uh -huh. That's, I'm, I'm not, that, I'm a bit dubious about that one, but I've had it, had it heard. I would say that fermented foods is going to be increasingly big over the next few years. Of course, this is in the, in the country that has an amazing number of fermented foods from soy sure. sauce to, to miso to, you know, sake and all kinds of things. But I think people are going to be going back to basics a bit more and probably maybe even making their own fermented foods. You have more imported ones coming, more, more exotic ones like kombucha and things like this are starting to catch on more and more. Another thing that's kind of dovetails with that is that Really, is there's a strong spread of vegan food now in Japan. Right. It's not so overt, whereby not so many specialist vegan restaurants. I mean, they exist. Um, 
we even have a superiority burger down in um, Shimokitazawa, um, which is a, a plant-based burger. Ah. But you get restaurants making sure they have at least one vegan or vegetarian thing on the menu, which never used to exist when I was coming, to right. the frustration of many, many visitors. Mm -hmm. And now it's got so much, so much easier. So I think that's something that's bubbling under. It won't become a trend, but it will be something that will be more and more important in Japan. And then there's one thing more specific to restaurants and um, more high-end dining, wood-fired cooking. Mm. Not not charcoal, but wood-fired, like like, okay. like wood-fired pizza ovens. Sure. But expanded to for cooking all kinds of food. Like what? So it might be meat, it might be vegetables, it might be... Uh, one of the top restaurants in the world is the Basque restaurant Echebari. Right. Wonderful place. Yeah. Amazing food, remarkable chef. And he has been doing this for like 15 years, 20 years now, mm -hmm. from humble beginnings up in the mountains, sort of a place of pilgrimage now. But it was just kind of, he was quietly getting on with it for many, many years, cooking everything over various different grates full of embers at different temperatures, raising and lowering the food so they cook at specific times. And a number of his uh, disciples have taken that around the world as Burnt Ends in Singapore, Dave Pent there, and um, a few others have taken that on. And it connects with my Destination Restaurant series. Ah. One of the places that exists actually on that list, which I wrote up last year in 22, is Don Bravo. It's a pizza restaurant. It started as a pizza restaurant, but it's much more than just pizza. It's out in Chofu, which is near enough Tokyo. It's actually part of big Tokyo, greater Tokyo, uh -huh. but it's it's far enough out of town that we that was decided legitimate to include on the list <laughs> um, and he cooks the whole meal just about in his pizza oven and the flavor he points out the flavor of charcoal is very very different from flavor of wood as it burns sure. and you can get some really subtle things by using different kinds of wood and different flavors in there and I again it's not going to be a massive trend but it's going to be in, in fine dining I think more and more prevalent. Are there any restaurants or dining establishments that are, are planning to open this year that you're looking forward to? Yeah, there's quite a few on the horizon. Um, you know, Tokyo never stops. Right. But I think the big event we're all looking forward to is Nomura coming to Kyoto, which will be in March through April, May, sorry, through May, actually, yes, taking over the restaurant in the Ace Hotel in Kyoto for a massive residency, the biggest and longest they've done so far. So the eyes of the world, of the, of the dining world, at least will be on Kyoto at that time. Specific projects in Tokyo, one of the areas that I had my eye on since actually last couple of years, but it's, it's starting to reach critical mass, I think now, is Kabuto-cho, which is the old stock market district in Tokyo. Oh, uh -huh. uh, and a number of restaurants have opened there. They're re regenerating it because it was getting very sort of down at heel as all the stock trading's done online now. So there weren't a lot of people actually working there. Right. And there's some nice bars and, and restaurants been opening there. And a new project just opened actually in December of last year, uh, but it's only just getting going. It's called The Bank Project. It includes a bistro called Yen. You know, they're getting all these um, mm -hmm. financial names. In, in there. <laughs> there's a bakery, there's a bar too. And that whole area, they're either building new architecture or converting old sort of heritage architecture from the 1930s, um, which is a really nice thing to see that they're keeping the old architecture and also bring another neighborhood of Tokyo up and revitalizing it. Yeah, when you're talking about fermentation, are you talking about like traditional Japanese fermentation with koji, the mold that makes so many things in Japan, or something else? 
Definitely that's included. That's such a, a primeval part of the fermentation process in Japan. Right. But people are also looking abroad more to sauerkrauts and to sour, sourdough breads and kombucha and making their own yogurt even. It's like the, on every level, we're not allowed to brew and beer officially or, or <laughs> make, make sake here officially. Uh-huh. It's done a little bit, I think. Out of sight. I think you know more than you're saying, Robbie. <laughs> I, I've heard tell. <laughs> but also people in Japan rediscovering their own traditions by making their own miso, by making their own natto, by, you know, just pickling things overnight. There's a, a wonderful store opened uh, actually a couple of years back now in Shimokitazawa area. They opened an area where a railway track used to run and they put the railway track underground and so it freed up a long tract of land and they called the area bonus track. And one of the shops brought in there is called Hakko Departo, which means fermentation department store. Mm. And it's just a large grocery with a small a restaurant attached. Sure. But it has so many fermented foods from all around the country. And you never realize there's such a variety of different foods. Awesome. Awesome. Robbie, it's so good to see you again. Thanks for coming back on. I can't wait till we can share a meal and raise a glass together soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Once again, a special thanks to Robbie Swinnerton for serving up some piping hot dining tips this week. And we have one update since recording this episode. On January 10th, it was reported that Noma will be closing its doors at the end of 2024. Robbie knows Noma well, having dined there several times, both in Copenhagen and at their 2015 residency at Tokyo's Mandarin Oriental Hotel. I called him up to get his thoughts. Hey, Robbie, just wanted to hear what you think about Noma's closing. Yeah, that news took me by surprise too. I've been going to Noma for the last 10 years every so often. I know Renny Rosepi a little bit. I've interviewed him and I know some people on the team and that was big surprise. As for Noma in Kyoto, it's not going to make any difference apart from the fact that for the team and for all those dining there, lucky enough to get tables, it's going to be even more memorable given that Noma in Copenhagen won't be continuing very much longer after this. If you love food and would like to read more of Robbie's work, and I encourage you to, you'll find links in the show notes. Also in the Japan Times this week from our staff writers, Eric Johnston writes about what to expect from Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in the next parliamentary session. Mara Budgen describes how Japan's ancient art of fermentation, essential to so much Japanese cuisine, is also making a significant environmental impact. And James Hadfield marks the passing of Yukihiro Takahashi, drummer for Yellow Magic Orchestra, one of Japan's most pioneering and influential bands. Their early use of electronic instruments, like the Roland 808 drum machine, went on to influence countless hip-hop and electronic artists after them. For these stories and thousands more, please consider a subscription to The Japan Times. This episode was edited by Dave Cortez. Our theme song is by 4L, and our outro song is by Oscar Boyd. See you next week, and Potsukara-sama.